Take your Bibles and go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 21. I encourage you as you are planning your day to consider joining us for tonight's service, our sing, praise, and prayer time. It's a special time for our church family. We sing about the word, we pray the word, we share um, in studying through a psalm together. So we'll be looking at Psalm 6 tonight. I hope you'll make time for that. We come now in the first chapter of Peter's letter to the third command that Peter will give to these churches in Asia Minor. Let's read now. We'll begin back in verse 13. Our text, though, is from 17 through 21. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. God says to us, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or revealed In the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's ask for his help again as we look at this text. Father, give us grace to see what you would have us to see and hear what you would have us to hear. Lord, as we come to your word, we expect that we need our minds to be changed, our hearts to be changed, our behaviors to be changed. So change us in a way that we can take no credit for, but help us to cooperate with your grace that we might discipline ourselves to godliness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we've considered this first chapter, we have said that verses 1 through 12 were a celebration of the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We have a living hope, Peter has said, that we're to cling to because Jesus is a risen Savior who is coming again. He will come to finally make us his own forever. Last week, we looked at verses 13 through 16. And there in verse 13, Peter gives us his first command after articulating all these gospel graces. And that first command was set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the second command in verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. Meditating on his work for us in the gospel, thinking about our new status as chosen exiles changes what we value. It teaches us to hope. Hoping in God then leads to a changed life. That second command then is to be holy. 
Now look again at our text this morning in verses 17 through 21. In these verses, what is the central idea or argument that Peter is making? And how do you know that this is his main argument? Do you see it there at the end of verse 17? He says, conduct yourselves in fear. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter now is issuing us this third command. He's commanding us to live in hope. We saw the first command. Live in holiness. Now live in fear. The command in the second half of verse 17 controls all of these verses 17 through 21. So our text is teaching us this morning as chosen exiles, believers are to live holy lives in reverent fear of God. The Greek word translated to conduct yourself literally means to go back and forth. The verb is highlighting the way you go about your life, the patterns that you're setting there, the ruts that you're driving into your life, your heart, your mind. It's addressing your lifestyle or your life patterns. When I make my way uh, from home to work and then back again, I generally follow the same pathway day after day after day. Week after week, we follow pretty similar patterns in our schedules, don't we? Sometimes we're frustrated when our schedules or patterns are interrupted. Sometimes we're looking forward to those interruptions. But this word, conduct yourselves, means as you're going through life, as you're making certain choices. The verb is telling us to set our patterns, to make those choices based on these truths. We're to choose our path through this life considering the fact that we are exiles through this time that we have here on this earth, the time of our exile. Peter will say in chapter 211, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This world and the things of this life are not to capture our priorities. Peter is reminding us again and again, you are not made for this life. It cannot satisfy you. It cannot give you hope when you're facing hardship or suffering. Have you ever traveled internationally and felt like you were not at home in that foreign country? It wasn't your bed. You weren't used to those customs. You didn't know your way around. I felt like that when we took a mission trip to South Africa a few years ago and we had to drive on the opposite side of the road. That's something you have to get used to. Many things in that country felt unfamiliar and much of the topic of our conversation as a mission team was about the differences that we noticed. We could tell we were not at home. We were strangers and foreigners. In this passage, believers are being called to choose a lifestyle of reverent fear as foreigners. Don't make yourself at home here. This isn't your home. Now, we must be careful to understand Peter accurately when he tells us to conduct ourselves in fear. That's something we might be surprised by. It makes sense to say, set your hope in God. It makes sense to us 
to say we're to live holy lives, though that's a very difficult command. But now we're being told to conduct ourselves in fear. We need to understand this carefully. This same word fear is the same word we see in the Gospels when the disciples are afraid of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus tells them they don't have any reason to be afraid. They're looking and fearing things that are here on this horizontal plane. This word fear tells us to fear God, to focus on him. It doesn't mean the same thing as that word there, though it's the same Greek word. The word here includes the idea of fear as reverence. But we want to be careful even when we think of that, because we can often water down the idea of reverence. Peter here is contemplating the final judgment where believers' lives and works will be judged. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, Peter's been trying to instill hope and confidence in believers who are going through difficulty. So how do confidence and fear go together? Why would Peter think, let's let's talk about fear now, if he's trying to instill hope and confidence? Commentator Thomas Schreider provides the analogy of a mature and skilled driver who is both confident in his skills with his car, yet he understands the danger that he's placing himself in when he's moving quickly down the interstate, surrounded by other vehicles. Again, I say a mature and skilled driver, right? Somebody who really does understand the dangers. He possesses a healthy fear of an accident which will prevent him from doing something foolish or reckless. In the same way, Peter wants to help us live in light of this sobering reality that our choices in this life have consequences. Our passage this morning commands us to live obediently in reverent fear of God, first, because our Father is also our judge, and secondly, because of the value of our redemption. So, Live in the fear of God first because he is your judge. Now verses 17 through 21, though we don't see it in the English, in the Greek they form just one single sentence controlled by this idea as we've said. But it's all based on a call to holiness centered, founded on this idea of our new relationship with God as our father. As God has brought us into this relationship, we have a responsibility to obey him. And again, as before we jump into what this verse and these two ideas of God mean, we want to be sure we're carefully understanding that we've been given this incredible relationship with God in spite of who we are. It's all of his grace. Our new nature must be fully embraced, fully grasped before we seek to obey his commands. I mentioned last week that the imperatives of the New Testament very often follow the indicatives. You are his child. It's an indicative. Now the command, conduct yourself with fear. This has been called the grammar of the gospel. Because only in Christianity are we told who we have been made in Christ before we're told what to do and how to live. Paul's going to exhort believers in the same way that Peter does here when he says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. 
children are supposed to look like their parents. Picture the tenderness of a father with his small children. A father with his little baby, with an infant, is so gentle. He's so caring. He wants to hold and comfort that little baby. And as they grow a little older, he's glad to hold them in his lap. It's a delight to him to see their eager faces. When he returns home, he enters over the threshold and they're there to greet him. And even when they're grown, his heart still wants to hear of their struggles. He cares for them in a unique way that no other human cares for his children. He's eager to listen and help in any way that he can. And yet God is a far greater and more caring father than the best of human parents. So is God my father or my judge? The answer is he's both. He's both. What are we to make of this point that God is not only our father but our judge? We're comforted and assured by the truth that God is our father and yet Peter wants us to understand more fully what that really means, what God's fatherhood to us means. It doesn't just mean that God is near. It also means that he is above us. Peter does not see this idea of God as father and God as judge as contrasting ideas. He sees them as complementary. One theologian concludes the relationship we have with God is both tender and awesome. And you minimize the picture of God by removing one or the other. Now this isn't fear of God's eternal punishment of us as sinners. We know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, this is the reverent fear of a God who takes our disobedience seriously. A genuine fear of God's judgment, of accountability to him, hinders a believer's temptation to give in to his sinful desires. Pastor Alexander McLaren seeks to help us balance these descriptions. He writes, I supposed in Peter's days, as in our days, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other. And who so magnified the thought of the father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all the ages so that the church as a whole has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been foolish enough to even pit them against each other instead of doing what Peter does here, braiding them together as both conspiring to one result, the production in the Christian heart of a wholesome awe. We don't throw out his love. He's our tender heavenly father, but don't forget that he's also our impartial judge who's paying attention to how you live. Our lifestyle proves the reality of our faith. God expects you to pursue holiness. As we understand the fullness of God's character as both father and judge, the psalmist says it will lead us to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So the point here is that the Christian who's been born again by the Father's grace must live as a child of God. Are you living in that way? Are you taking advantage of grace? 
Whenever we begin to entertain the thought, oh, I can do this and get away with it, God certainly will forgive me. He's a forgiving God. He's my father. He's my friend. We are on dangerous ground. We're saying we don't know him well at all. We are offending him. And if we can live in that mindset, we do not know him. The fact that God is our father and judge leads Peter to think in exactly the opposite direction of minimizing his righteousness. So this truth is intended to help protect protect us against presumptuous sins. God is impartial. Remind yourself that God sees what you do. We're told that in several places throughout Scripture. He understands what you desire. He knows what you think when no one else does. And it matters to him, Peter is saying. How we choose to live matters to him. He will bring every deed into account. What is your relationship with God this morning? Is he your father and judge? Are you his child? Do you know him? What evidence of that relationship can you point to in your life? If you don't know him this morning, today can be the day of salvation for you. If you turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Secondly, live life in the fear of God because of the infinite value of your redemption. Peter commands, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. Our understanding of what Christ has accomplished in us through redemption is meant to motivate us, to spur us, to draw us forward in the way that we're to go through life. If you never think, never meditate on what Christ has done for you, if you're not growing in your understanding of his grace to you, Peter is demonstrating, you will not be motivated to live for him either. So first, we see that your redemption required a price to be paid. The verb ransomed here means to be delivered, liberated, or redeemed. As Peter writes to these local congregations, they're made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This word would have provided a helpful analogy to both of them. In the culture of the first century, many, many people were slaves. They say up to a third of the population in this Greco-Roman world were slaves. And there were ways to get out of slavery. Often somebody would put themselves voluntarily in slavery to overcome a debt that they'd incurred. And if a slave wished to purchase his or her freedom, one of the ways he could do so was by depositing the required price of his freedom in the temple treasury of a particular god or goddess. The slave owner would receive a portion of that price, but the rest went into the treasury of that temple. And the newly freed person was considered to have been redeemed or bought back by that deity. That man or woman was now freed, but they were religiously viewed as a lifelong servant of that God or goddess. For the Jews, they would have been recalling their history, both in being rescued from slavery out of Egypt or in being liberated to return home from Babylon after the exile. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 8, we read that the Lord kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand And redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh. Isaiah speaks 
of the release of God's people from Babylon using that same word. For this is what the Lord says, you are sold for nothing and not with money. You shall be redeemed. It's significant that Peter says that they were ransomed. We were ransomed. We didn't ransom ourselves. This is a divine passive. God rescues us. Again, Peter's rehearsing the gospel. Believers should see themselves as indebted to God, even as his slaves. We were bought with a price, not a temporal price like silver and gold, though those things may be valuable in this life. And think of that. They're the most valuable things in this life, and yet they cannot buy or free a soul. Rather, we've been purchased with something far, far more precious, Peter says. He's contrasting here the temporary value of money with the eternal preciousness of the blood of Christ. In this, he's referring to Christ's death. Jesus gave up his life to redeem his people from their former way of ignorance and sin, from their emptiness. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that in the Father, we have redemption through his Jesus Christ's blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished or provided in abundance for us. Now, no picture, no illustration can fully demonstrate the ransom that Jesus provides to us through his blood. But picture a person who's been the recipient of a heart transplant, a young lady perhaps from the victim of a car crash. The crash took a young lady's life and by permission of her family, This person has received that heart. Now, what would be the appropriate response to that family if they asked to meet that recipient of their daughter's heart? Would it matter that she came on time? Would it matter her attitude as she showed up, how she dressed? Would it matter that she expressed her immense gratitude? What? kind of response would be warranted that their choice saved her life your salvation was immensely costly peter is saying don't rush through that fact there's no greater cost than the blood the life of the son of god himself the creator of the universe Church family, do we really need any other motivation to live for him, to reject our sin, our former ways, to stop thinking about ourself? How can we minimize his sacrifice by living self-centered lives? Look at the priorities of your life this past week. Have they said Christ's sacrifice, the payment of his blood, is the most important priority in my life? Is that shaping the lens through which I see all other priorities? How dare we callously give in to besetting sins over and over just because we've grown comfortable with them, because we're banking on God to forgive us. John Piper says of this passage, fear treating the blood of Christ as trash, as nothing, as license to live how you want. Fear cozying up with the same sin that you were ransomed from with this incredible price. That's why Peter's saying, remember the price. For us to continue to willfully choose to sin, knowing that price that God paid 
to forgive us could be compared to a woman whose husband loved her greatly. He sacrificed his own life to save her from a rapist and a murderer. And yet after his funeral, she seeks out that same criminal and pursues a romantic relationship with him. That would be unthinkable. And yet when we chase our sin willingly, that's what we're doing over and over again. Because God redeemed us at infinite cost, we dare not play with the same sins for which Christ shed his own blood. You see the motivation that Peter is applying to our lives to live in reverent fear? Second, your redemption comes through God's initiative. Look again at verse 20. He, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest or revealed, and this is the incarnation in the last times for the sake of you. Now, why does Peter tell us here that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world? How does that advance his point that we should live in the fear of God? He's telling us that our redemption is no afterthought. This was intentional This was purposed by God in eternity past that you should be gathered into his own family. That's how significant and precious you are to him. All to display his incredible supremacy. Foreknowledge here cannot simply mean that God knew about something ahead of time. That would only be highlighting his omniscience. This phrase demonstrates that God took action in eternity past. He put forth the initiative for salvation in eternity past. Within the Godhood, the plan of redemption was formed in order to demonstrate how incredible and glorious our triune God truly is. Do you see? Matthew Henry emphasizes foreknowledge implies more than bare prospect or speculation. It imports an act of the will. A resolution that things shall be, shall come to pass. God did not only foreknow with knowledge, but determine and decree that his son should die for man. And this decree was before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, the apostle Paul calls Jesus the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And if you recall carefully, the beginning of the book, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, he says that you were foreknown. The word is the same. You were in God's mind in eternity past. The reason we should fall down before God in reverence and awe, the reason we should live out our lives in reverent fear is because his sovereign grace planned out your redemption Through the infinite cost of the blood of his son, he's been eager to make you his own long before we ever entered this world. What does Peter mean when he says that Jesus was made manifest in the last times? He's referring to Jesus' incarnation when he came. That initiated what the New Testament calls in places the last times. For instance, we saw this in the Hebrews 1 passage. The author states, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days. Again, in Hebrews 9.26, He's appeared once for all at the end of the ages. 
Peter uses this idea again in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things mean that the last days of salvation history commenced. They began with Jesus' coming, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. We've been living in the last days then since that time. It doesn't mean there aren't last days when Jesus comes again, and there's specific references there, but in salvation history, these are the last times. Why does Peter say this? He's emphasizing to these believers and to us that we have this extremely enviable, privileged position in the timetable of God's plan of salvation through the ages. The point is made explicit in that he ends verse 20 by saying, these things occurred for your sake. Do you see the privilege that you have as a believer today? We enjoy living in a time after the completion of Christ's work on the cross, after his resurrection. Remember what Peter had said about the prophets. They were overwhelmingly eager to see the Messiah, to see what we get to know and see in the scriptures. We get to experience all the blessings of God's saving work through Jesus' finished cross work by no choice of our own. Why do you get to live on this side of the cross with all of these benefits? His kindness. It's a tragedy when we live in a way that minimizes these privileges, that misses them. Meditating on our redemption should be a constant and powerful encouragement for us to live in holiness. Do you see how a greater understanding of the gospel raises the bar for how we live? It doesn't lower it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God in our bodies. We are not our own, we are his. The more you meditate on your need for a ransom, the more precious his sacrifice for you becomes, then the more you live in reverent fear. Can you see how this should also motivate us to live lives that honor God in everything? Third, your redemption should produce greater faith and hope in God. Look again at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead and gave him glory with the result so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter summarizing that we have put our faith in a God who has proven that salvation hope is rock solid. Jesus was raised from the dead, assuring us of victory over sin and death. Christ has been glorified, proving that his work is sufficient. Notice again the focus on our hope. The result of Jesus' work fuels our faith and our hope in God. Our faith is built up as we meditate on the gospel, as Peter, Peter applies it to our lives. Hope is the book ends of this opening section, isn't it? We saw it in verse 3, and then in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. And now again in verse 21. You can trust the God who has authored, who has accomplished, who has applied the work of Jesus to your life. You can trust that God. He's done all this for our sake, for our eternal good. Our faith then rests 
not in some hastily constructed divine reaction to the fall of mankind. God was not blindsided by man's sin. This was his eternally magnificent plan for all the ages. Do you see the spiritual mountaintop that Peter has caused us to stand upon and and the perspective, the vistas he's giving us? Do you see how that's supposed to give us hope in our times of trouble and suffering and hardship? Look at your privileged position. Look at what it cost Christ to save you. Stand fast in this grace. Know it. Hope in God. Three commands have dominated the verses in chapter one so far. Hope, be holy, and live in fear. Peter's not simply calling us to live a moralistic life. One author helpfully summarizes, a life of holiness, as we're being taught here by Peter, is one which God is prized above all things, in which believers trust and hope fully in his goodness. So our passage teaches us that every aspect of our lives should exhibit a reverent fear of God because of all that he has done for you. We're to choose to live a life of reverent fear in every way, in every avenue of life. How you spend your money, how you choose to spend your time, who you choose to date, how you interact in your marriage, how you spend your free time, what hobbies you invest in, how you make your plans for the future, how you choose your friends, how you are parenting, how you view your role at work and in the community, how we approach worship, every aspect of our lives is to exhibit a reverent fear of the God who sovereignly planned before the world began to redeem you from your empty life through the sacrificial, costly death of his son, which gives you hope and faith. Psalm 134 verse 4 says, but with you, God, There is forgiveness so that you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to fear. The aim and purpose of God ransoming us and claiming us as his own is not just forgiveness, but transformation. It's transformation. Do you see that? This is the key to victory over the power of sin in your daily life. Jesus shed his blood to change you, to make you his own to help you look more and more like you, him. God chose his son. He sent his son. He put his son to death. He raised his son from the grave. He gave him glory. Why? Why, Peter? Why all of this? So that you would hope in God and not live your own way. So that you would trust what God can do for you rather than in what you can do for yourself. So focus all of your mind's attention, all of your heart's affection on this Christ so that you might be satisfied in him and not in your sin. Are you living a life that honors God because you are growing in reverent fear of him? Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice again in Jesus Christ. We rejoice how your word reveals to us the emphasis of who you are. We so often lean toward what we like to think about you. 
Our conception of you sometimes stands preeminent over your word. And yet here we're reminded of the truths of the gospel of who you are as both our father and our judge. As a father and judge who willingly gave up his own son so that our faith and hope would be in you. Help us to grow in our walk, to look more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.